If you're looking to save some money on your wireless plan, take a look at Visible Wireless. They're a transparent wireless carrier with nothing to hide. If you haven't heard of Visible, well, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Switch to Visible where you can get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just 25 bucks a month, taxes and fees included. One-line wireless, just 25 bucks a month with taxes and fees included. That's unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Switch now at Visible.com. You shouldn't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. Like Visible, the wireless company making wireless visible. Monthly rate on the Visible plan. For data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Smokes, welcome one, welcome all to the very first episode of Podcast Unlocked. Welcome to me? Yes, welcome to Christine. <laughs> uh, my name is Ryan Clements. I'm an editor at IGN.com. You may know me from such podcasts as Podcast Beyond. Beyond. And that's pretty much it. I mean, I've been on Game Scoop yeah, before, so been on Game but Scoop, uh, yeah. not not consistently, not like our own Damon Hatfield. Now, I am joined, as you've already heard this ethereal voice in the room, by one Christine Steimer. Hello. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, I'm the female editor, LOL. <laughs> no, um, well, now there's Audrey as well. So there's two of us. Yes. Holy And crap. Stephanie. Well, she's guides, though. I'm talking about, like. Mm-hmm. Okay. But gotcha. I guess guides, people do occasionally write. They write, they write, they write the stuff. Yeah. They write the stuff. They, write, they write a lot more than we do. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I got started here uh, in the editorial pool. Gosh, what is it, like seven months ago? Something like that? Man, I thought you'd been on here longer. Yeah, well, I've been at IGN longer. Right. But I was more but of in the, the managing yes, sort exactly. of uh, role. And you then I was the like, I want to write. So now I do. Okay, excellent. And we are unfortunately not joined. On our first episode, I we're know. not joined by one of our team members. Arthur. Uh, Arthur Geese is going to be joining us for almost all the episodes, I would say. As many yeah. as he can afford. But he does appear in our very special interview that we are going to be segueing into uh, in just a moment. Where we had the chance to talk to... This guy named Cliff Blazinski. He's just like a dude, a He's regular a dude. dude. Um, but he may have created something you all know called Gears of War. It's uh, a big game. It's one of Microsoft's biggest exclusives. So uh, obviously getting the opportunity to talk with him was huge. Huge. But neither of us were in that interview. <laughs> no, no. Uh, Hillary Goldstein, um, uh-huh. Ryan Geddes, and then Arthur all sat down in a room and chatted him up. This yes. is all the audio from that. We'll also be doing... Um, sort of a, a condensed video version of it so that you'll get yes. all the good bits and then a little bit of Gears of War 3 uh, footage in there as well. And this was all done during GDC, so that's why they're referring to GDC in the interview. That's because that happened. Oh my gosh, it was only last week, it wasn't was it? It was only last week. Oh, it feels like forever ago. But yeah, so uh, just to let you guys know, uh, Podcast Unlocked is definitely going to be as consistent as we can make it. Uh, definitely come back to listen to us. I, I mean, we're going to be aiming for every week on Wednesdays. So that's when people can come and die. You're giving Y'all me a weird look. Y'all come back now, you hear? That's not what I said. I didn't do it with an accent. Well, I did. Okay. Well, you're better than me. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, definitely uh, tune in. On a, We're going to be a weekly show. Uh, we're going to have Arthur back on next week uh, unless he flies out into some foreign land to cover a game that I've never heard of. He's not anywhere foreign. But uh, just to let you guys know, I want to thank uh, a very special thanks to what could arguably be our first listener, who is Curtis, or Kurt, who just uh, designed, not designed, I guess people don't design songs, do they? But he, they he wrote and created songs? the uh, little ditty that we heard uh, when I made a call. Compose? Yes, composed would be a much better 
word for it. He composed the song that we used for our opening just now, and uh, he writes that uh, he is a, res a resident of British Columbia, Canada, and he wants to uh, have our, his little ditty in the opening theme for Podcast Unlocked, and it happened. So congrats. Cool. And thank you very much for the opening. I was very much into it, and as Christine can tell you, it was very Xbox-y, right? Yes, it did remind me of Xbox. Yes. One of the other submissions we got, which I enjoyed, just sounded like a, an epic dance, dance yeah, tune. It, that I would, you would it hear popping me off in a clubbing club. clubbing in Europe. Yeah, exactly. Clubbing in Europe? Mm -hmm. Have you ever clubbed in Europe? I have. Okay. Well, there you go. Um, <laughs> Story I for another time. Just uh, to let everyone know, uh, our official email address is going to be unlocked at IGN.com. Uh, so if you have questions, comments. Hate mail. Hate mail, anything. Or just photographs that you want to send to us. Photographs. Be no, why would you say that? Who knows? Nothing. No body parts, please. No body parts. Unless they're clothed, right? Right. Yeah. Well, okay, that's I mean, so weird. I mean, because if they sent a photo of themselves, like, I'm a listener. Oh, okay. You know? That's fine. Yeah. There you go. Unlocked at IGN.com. Please start sending us questions if you have anything you want us to talk about on our second show, which will have the full cast and we'll have a much more, uh, you know, probably a better schedule than this. Because right now it is the end of the day. Christine and I are sitting here and it's kind of a dark, eerie room almost. Yeah, they've got upstairs. these big black sheets up because uh, the walls aren't soundproofed right now. Needless to say, not an ideal environment for the two of us right now. So it'll probably be better timed, and we'll have Arthur. But luckily, you get to enjoy that interview now. So let's go right into that and come back next week for more uh, Podcast Unlocked and more shenanigans between myself, Christine, and Arthur. Please do enjoy. Yes. Thank you. Hey, I'm Hillary Goldstein. I am here with Cliff Dzinski from Epic Games, uh, Ryan Geddes, as you all know, and Mr. Arthur Geese. Uh, we're here just to pretty much chat about Gears of War. We're at GDC. We figured uh, what better time than to bring Cliff in and just sort of have a talk about the beta, you know, Gears 1, Gears 2, sort of the Gears franchise expanding outside of the games realm. Uh, so let's have at it. So, Cliff, maybe we could start off with, uh, you know, the big news that uh, you announced on Friday, which is uh, about when the beta is going to be happening. Yeah, yeah, the beta's, uh, so if you got Bolt Storm Epic Edition, it's April 18th, you can actually get in, so you have that kind of early access window, and then on the 25th is when everybody else who pre-orders the game at GameStop can then start getting in there, right? The thing is, it's uh, running it on dedicated servers from day one, so right out the gate, when everybody gets online, hopefully, hypothetically, it'll all run really, really smooth. And the thing about this is it, we realize we are shipping a beta, but it's also a demo, right? This is the first impression people are going to have of this game, and so it had to be as polished as we could get it, because once you put it out there to the hundreds of thousands, if not more, of gamers who are going to pick it up, they're going to find bugs. And then the metagame of putting bugs up on YouTube and the things that they find in the exploits is just going to pursue and it's going to continue. And then we want them to send it to us, tweet it to us, post it on the forums, and hopefully we can find all that stuff and have the time to squash it before we ship. And that actually brings up something interesting, which is, uh, you know, betas are kind of nothing new for PC gamers. Yep. And I think they uh, are, have a built-in knowledge of what a beta means. Mm -hmm. uh, but perhaps, you know, going to a console gamer, is there any concern that these guys don't actually understand that the game is still in progress? I think, I think they do, because I think you've seen the, the precedent of the Halo betas. You've seen other games that have betas, right? Right? And it's it's a, a point where what you're doing is you're creating like a VIP type of mentality, right? Where the, the consumer who's the, the, the connector, the guy who's the evangelist of the franchise is like, oh, I, I'm in the beta. Did, were you, you were in, oh, he missed out on the fun. He wasn't in the beta. Oh, did you see the, the golden retro Lancer I unlocked? My, oh, you, you weren't there. Yeah. So now I'll have to wait, wait for you guys to just give it away on Twitter every day. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> right? No, we have to, you have to switch up the codes, actually. But those things are like the Golden Lancer and Hammerverse were going for like 50 bucks on eBay at one point, right? And that's the power of virtual goods right now. Where people are eager to get these things that are basically nothing. It's a virtual space and it's just swag to say, hey, look at my gun, isn't this cool? And then you get envy and you want that. And entire games are being built upon that with you know, microtransactions and that entire freemium model that everybody's talking about these days. How do you go about managing expectations as far as releasing a console beta? Because, I mean, we've seen with other console betas that people do just treat them as demos. And like you said, this is demonstrating to people what the game is going to be, but also it's serving a purpose for you to determine how the servers are going to work to make sure that it goes off without a hitch when you launch in September. I mean, well, because if we if we release Gears Three and it has the same launch as Gears Two online, then the franchise is dead. So we, you can't afford to make that mistake twice, right? right. And to be fair, uh, over the course of the six title updates, you know, we got Gears Two in a very good position, and we need to take it to great. And that's what this will help do. I mean, it's one of those things. Epic is a studio. We haven't done a lot of this. 
right? You, there's always been all that controversy in the PC community. I mean, they still joke about Unreal 1 never having a demo, right? And we were a studio that used to never do demos, never do betas, and then launching a new IP with Boldstorm, we realized, okay, like, let's give people a taste of this so they can actually get hands-on with it, get a nice press bump for it, and then for Gears, it's like, look, we need to make sure this is rock solid right there from day one, so let's do this. And also, by the way, if you're a developer and you're releasing a beta and your game is gold, that's a demo, it's not a beta. <laughs> Yeah, you guys are actually looking to get feedback out of this. Yeah, I mean, we're, make we're sure allowing are and the a good four, you know, like a good like six to eight weeks at least. Uh, you know, once the beta is wrapped, to allow for you know triage to you know allow for bugs, for smoke testing, for finding out what the actual issues were that people found online. And I can assure you that we've put in all the hooks for weapon balancing and testing. So we know who gets killed with what weapon. We know where it happens. We know when it happens. We know all those details. We know what options people are changing. We know what the best weapons are, so that you know once the game comes out, the maps are better balanced, the weapons are better balanced, and you have a smooth online game. I mean. I mean, you, you need to listen to what people say on forums. We also need to trust the data and kind of, you know, put the two together and trust your gut. Well, what do you do with data for somebody like me who never dies in a Gears of War game? Like, uh, you, you elevate you to Neo status. Good. Because you are the one. Uh, I'm curious because I, I was happens. playing uh, the kind of the beta demo that Microsoft had uh, last week with you, and I had noticed that you were dying quite often, and I was wondering, was that just so that other people could experience what it yeah. was like to kill somebody? The, the, we were playing with some Europeans, and like I wanted That's to make true. them feel, feel good about the game. So I, I allowed Well, and then when you were struck point. down, you came back twice as strong. <laughs> That's true. So the beta too, it's it's like a little bit of a rolling release, right? So you have um, the, the Bulletstorm folks get in early, and then Gears of War three pre-orders get in after that, and then you're you're having like team deathmatch at first, right? Yeah. And then we're rolling out some other modes. Yeah, and we're going to be rolling out Capture the Leader, which is our VIP mode. It's a, you basically uh, knock down the Queen or Chairman Prescott. You have to hold them and take and take them away for just a certain period of time in order to score. And then we have King of the Hill, which is a territories-based game mode. If we came out right out the gate and everything was there day one, people would play it for a little while, they'd have fun, but you want there to be that kind of carrot of us being the dungeon masters of kind of spooling out different game modes so that there's a reason to keep coming back in the weeks that the beta is going to be out there, right? And also making sure that there's unlockables that kind of last throughout the duration of it so that you know you don't have day two, everybody's running around and it's Thrashball Cole. And you're like, well, psh, I'm done. I mean, it's, we're in a world in 2011 and beyond that the tale of your game, the extended play period where people play it, needs to go on for months on end. Otherwise, players will trade in your game and they'll pick up something else. So you need to have that kind of grind in your game. It's what I had said years ago about the future shooters and some ways being RPGs, right? Yeah. And I think one of the things is, you know, starting off with Team Deathmatch is something that everybody understands, so you almost kind of get that there's sort of no variable to that. Like, everybody gets the idea of, I go around, I kill people, uh, and once you start adding sort of... Uh, sort of objectives, uh, and stuff. Yeah, objectives and stuff like that, then you sort of start to have to actually filter out how many people just don't get it. Well, so if you get a new shooter, right, you go home and you, you know, pick up a, whatever new franchise and, and you fire it up, what's the first thing you do in multiplayer? You go straight to the team deathmatch. I just want to kill some guys. Yep. I need to learn the guns. I need to learn you know, the, the way the character moves. I need to learn the verbiage, the maps, things like that. Once you get that, okay, then let me go in and get the territories-based modes. And to be fair, myself personally as a gamer, I like just team deathmatch. Like I just yeah. like going in and, and you know having some friends and just killing some fools. The objective-based game types for me, you know, and this is my personal opinion because a lot of people really do like them. You know, especially for clan play and things like that. You know, you're not killing people so much as you're teleporting them, right? And just kind of pushing them out of your way to try and get to the objective, which you know is fair. You know, it's, it is what it is. But my personal preference is for a team deathmatch, which is why I'm freaking stoked to see it finally making its way into gears. I actually really liked Meat Flag in mm. uh, the previous game, and so I was happy to see that Capture the Leader was sort of like. It was it was that idea, but sort of taken to a, a new place. And I, I got a chance to play it at the multiplayer event, and I really liked it's it. It's a lot of responsibility when you're the leader. Yeah, like it's, it's fun. It's right. intimidating. You're like, you know, we pause the game, and you're the leader, and you're like, let's go, I'm the leader, and you're like, oh crap, I, you know, I, what do I do now? And you're trying to hide, and you can actually hold a left bumper to hit TACOM and kind of see through walls, which is pretty cool. Uh, but you really feel like everybody's bearing down on you, and you're really hoping people will like defend you. And when you get captured, you're just like sitting there watching your your, your guy being carried around, like. Damn it! And you can hit the B button once in a while. Still have that in. That's good. Yeah. It's fun. It. Like yeah, if you if you you get that one moment where you yeah. can mash the button and kind of struggle a little bit. The, so the if great you time thing, it right. Well, if they, if, they, yeah, if they have like a you know they're trying to shoot somebody, they can kind of jostle their shots and screw them up. Yeah. There's a tiny tiny bit of damage, <clears throat> and what happens is uh these characters of, of of Prescott from the Cog and Mirror from the Queen, they're these aristocrat characters. So as you hit the button, they say things like "Unhand me, you fiend," and all this kind of like really hoity-toity dialogue, which is fun in and of itself. So playing it, like spending a good amount of time playing it last week, it definitely feels smoother uh, and it seems more animated than Gears of War 2 did. What was, from a technical and mechanical perspective, what were the big priorities for Gears of War 3's multiplayer? Uh, well, 
This is a complicated question because when you look at shooters and the history of shooters, people usually hate the second game in the series. A lot of people didn't like Halo 2, a lot of people don't like Counter-Strike Source, a lot of people didn't like Quake 2, a lot of people didn't like Unreal Tournament 2003. I can keep going through on and on and on with the list. What happens is sometimes in the sequel, a developer tries to polish and kind of tweak the formula almost too much. They mess with that perfect formula. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. So one of the things we did in Gears 2 is we slowed the player movement down by 15%. Just to kind of, you know, maybe the game will seem a little bit more tactical, things like that. Turns out it was a bad idea, right? Concussive grenades, something else was added in that made players go to ragdoll, led to exploits all over maps of players getting out of the world. It was frustrating that. for a lot of <laughs> it, it happens. It was frustrating for a lot of players to get knocked down because players do not like control being taken away from them ever, especially when they want to keep moving. And so when we were designing the game, we were thinking about the balance and the animations. We want to allow the shotgun rolly kids to still be able to play. We have a sawed-off shotgun, so if you get super close to somebody, you can take them out. But we also want to like have the rifle guys have a chance to succeed. So the rifles are well balanced. You can down somebody with an active reloaded uh, rifle very, very quickly now in this game. So we want to uh, kind of cater to all those different play, st play styles and also just smooth out the animations a lot more. I mean, when you notice when like Marcus and the characters kind of are in roadie run, they lean a little bit more, you know, kind of tweaking foot placement so the feet place a lot better, kind of make an overall just smooth experience. The other thing, honestly, is the lighting. Like, I don't know if you had a chance to check it, but it's pretty impressive. the characters just pop now. Right. Previously, we kind of had to overcompensate by you know, putting more meshes everywhere to make the game seem more detailed. Now we can just let the lighting breathe, let the characters pop, and this kind of all comes together to create what uh, seems to be perceived as a buttery smooth experience, uh, judging from the preview event. A buttery smooth buttery experience. Smooth. Mm. I like yeah, that. I think, I think the other things, the two things that the beta is always great for me is, uh, one is that you know, most multiplayer maps are in some way inspired by something you see in the single player. So in a way, it does kind of give you a little bit of a, uh, what you hope would be a preview of what you might see Absolutely. or experience in the single player campaign. But then uh, on top of that is that, you know, jumping back into Gears after, you know, a year off or whatever, uh, you kind of forget, like, how different it plays from, you know, whether you like it or not, how different it plays from other multiplayer games. Yeah. Like, you know, having played a bunch of Halo and Call of Duty and stuff like that, it's like just the pacing, the style, it's like so very different that you kind of almost need that now to have, like, a, re like a little refresher course in April that kind of goes like, hey, you gotta remind yourself again, like how you're gonna play this game, because it, it really doesn't play like other I, stuff. I think in order for the franchise to be its own thing and continue to be its own game, it needs to play differently. I mean, if you look at Mortal Kombat and Street Fighter, yeah, they're fighting games, but they're really drastically different. And, and once, yeah. it's the same thing when we went to made that leap to 3D fighters. You know, you had to get used to Tekken or the timing of Virtua Fighter. That was a completely different experience, and it's the same thing with this game. And we didn't want to just make a game where you're running around at 60 miles an hour as a hovercraft with a gun mounted to your nose, right? I think that space is, is currently owned and taken over by other games. We wanted to make a game where you could see your character, you could uh, interact with the environment, and you have small, intimate, tight environments, by the way. Uh, and yes, it is a preview of the single player, right? You will get to see certain environments that, you know, slight spoilers of places you'll be able to go to in the campaign because it's a similar mesh set and things like that, but still a lot of surprises in store, I think. So, I mean, Gears, by the time Gears 3 comes out, it won't, there won't have been a new Gears game on consoles for about three years. Yep. And in that time, there's been this just rocket trajectory upward for the Call of Duty series, and there have been a couple of Halo games. What are the challenges of reintroducing Gears to the Xbox Live player community after that much time? Uh, a hell of a lot of marketing on the Microsoft app. <laughs> I, I, I think you know, when you're in tech, and we were talking about this earlier, the world moves quickly and the ground shifts quickly underneath your feet. I think the biggest change that we've seen is the rental market's gotten even bigger, the used game market's gotten bigger. You go to Best Buy right now, and you see trade in your games, right? So weird, right? And it's, and, yeah. But it's money. I mean, it's, this is capitalism. You can't blame them for doing that, right? And you know, there can't be legislation. That, I mean, there's some stuff that's being worked on, but you can't count on the government to kind of fix that for you. I just so tweeted that you called for legislation against Yeah, thank you, thank you. <laughs> <I appreciate laughs> games, by the way. And so what we need to do is create is make, and I said this in my lecture, is make gamers marry your game, not just date it. And this is one thing that uh, they knew uh, in Infinity Ward when they were working on the Call of Duty franchise. They're like, we need to, it's not just enough to hop online and have a match with somebody and oh, I had a little bit of fun, which is how it used to be with, you know, the Quake and Unreal days, right? Now it's like, oh, I'm online and, and oh, but you, you got a little bit of this, you know, you got, you, you're, you know, you're almost to this level, you know, you want to, you know, keep playing and stay on all night. Uh, so one of, some of the things that we do in the game, one of the things that I think is amazing is the fact we have this calendar. World of Warcraft had this, a lot of these MMOs have known this for a while, but we shift the game from being this one-off experience to a dungeon master experience where we're like, okay, 
next Tuesday, it's Ticker Tuesday, it starts at 8 p.m., you're gonna wanna be there, don't miss out. And then on the 21st, that's when the big DLC's coming, you know, and it's gonna be awesome, and you're gonna wanna see it, and you can go to this website for this news on it. And so you're sitting there, and you're playing the game, and you're like, wow, you know, I'm kind of invested in this, so I probably don't wanna trade this in yet, because I don't wanna miss out on all these cool events that are coming up. Even if you miss it out, you miss out this date, you don't even show up for Ticker Tuesdays, it's in your head, it's the gym membership you never use, right? You're kind of dealing with the psychological battle of keeping the disc in the tray and keeping gamers playing your game and not somebody else's. And to be fair, there's an amazing amount of critical mass with the Call of Duty franchise. They've done a, a stellar job with that. Treyarch stepped up with Black Ops and continued the franchise. And that's one thing we, we've learned from. You know, you will see the XP bar. We have little tricks we're doing that if you play consecutive matches, you get more XP. If you do executions, you get more XP because that's just the value of a number. It's amazing how much and, and how important that is for gamers. You talked a little bit in your, your uh, speech at GDC this week about the things that we're still not doing with our games and the connections between our screens, mm -hmm. which I think is really interesting. And like I think you said something like, "Hey, like you know, there's an evolution beyond split-screen gameplay. Where why can't while I'm playing a game, why can't my friend be on his iPad helping me with hacking mini games yep. or something? Like why aren't we there yet? And like when do you think we'll be there? And like what's on what's on, what's on your wish list for the, the main issue? Well, first off, the logistics of doing it, right? Of actually digging in and getting the code to do it and getting these devices to talk to each other is an issue. That's something that needs to be solved. And some people have worked on that. Trendy Entertainment uh, doing Dungeon Defender has a, yeah. a PS3 talking to the portables and things like that. Uh, the other thing is is a lot of the larger, uh, I don't really phrase this nicely, it's hard to get these companies to, to talk to each other. It's hard to like allow these platforms to talk to each other because a lot of the studios don't want it, right? It, you know, the, the Xbox Live, it, it's, it's a closed kind of system right there. And uh, I know a lot of people at Microsoft recognize the value in this sort of thing. I mean, you look at you know Xbox Live integration into Windows Phone 7, but I'm like, why do I not have a, like an awesome app on iOS devices? I mean, totally. Apple was smart enough to know that, well, there's a lot of PCs out there, there's not a lot of Macs, we better put iTunes on the PC. So I think that Microsoft moving forward needs to continue to kind of recognize that shift and put this kind of functionality into Apple devices and even beyond, maybe Blackberry, Droid, things like that, in order to get these devices talking. I remember playing Mass Effect 2 and doing the mining minigame, and I was like, why is it that I can't just do this on my phone during like pills boring meetings? You know, yeah. like yeah, I'm agree. sitting there not paying attention to him anyway, so I might as well be mining planets yeah, like so, on my so, phone, right? So I mean, some of those games have done that. I mean, if you look at Chuck's Ducks, that was the experimentation they did for Crackdown 2. Mm. Not a lot of people saw it. There's a little, you know, little mini game on Facebook where you could click on things and then they actually unlocked these duck explosives in Crackdown 2. Oh, that's cool. That was kind of a cool test, but not a lot of people knew about it because it didn't make significant impact, right? When you start combining these things with reciprocity, with, uh, you know, hey, you know, I'm in this game and I just found this treasure chest and damn it, I can't open it, but you're the key master. I have to send that to you. You're on the BART and you're like, oh, I just got this thing. I, I do a little fun little puzzle and now I unlock this. I get XP, you get XP, we all win. We need to evolve to this point where the game is always with you. And that, I mean, that's the person who solves that problem is going to be the one who wins. And one of my fears right now with the, talking about this is everyone's shifting to it's not just one-off products, it's, it's games as services. Yeah, but people only ever really have one or two services, right? Like, you know, and so what I was saying about, about WoW, you know, you know, people who are just like, what do you play? I play WoW. That's it. Because WoW is such a deep, inclusive game. And you also are paying a monthly fee for that. Yeah. That you get to the point where people will only pay for one or two things, right? So it's it's pretty scary from like a, a business standpoint. Also, I would like to mention that Sega had this all figured out with the Dreamcast. You could play games on your That's VMU. True. It lasted for about thirty minutes before the battery ran out. But then some, like uh, you could raise your little uh, little guys. You're, in, uh, you're, you're, you're little Sonic Tamagotchi Hedgehog. type thing, right? Yeah. 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 And, and they, they were, what's old is new. This is one thing yeah. I've learned over the years. Is sometimes the new technology isn't this brand new nanotechnology thing that pops out of nowhere that will heal and fix everything. Sometimes it's an old idea that people forgot about or people haven't really brought back and done right yet. If you look at the 3DS, I mean, Nintendo knew that with the Virtual Boy, right? You know, the, the Wii was the, you know, predicated by the power glove, right? And all of these things had been around, and it's just the latest version of it that slowly got better. If you look at Kinect, it's a camera, but it's got depth, and then they wind up combining it with, you know, the microphone and, and all these features to kind of make a, a very cool new product. It's, you know, it's the evolution of technology that people forget about that often is new. Speaking of Kinect, I mean, is that something that you see Epic Games using in a Gears of War-like experience, or do you think that Kinect well, needs yeah, to be on its own? And then, the, then the clearly, we're working on Mutant League football for Gears. I don't know if you saw that rumor. <laughs> you fucking tease me with that. <laughs> it's not. A it's going to be okay, Arthur. It's going to be okay. I'm, I'm a fan of Kinect, man, and it's it's not, it's not just that we work with Microsoft. But in what capacity, right? I mean, we're well, all fans of Kinect. We think it's cool tech, but you know, do you think? I'm fans of standing up. Have you played? Have you played Gunstringer? 
I have not. Well, first off, you don't need to stand during it. Yeah, this is true. You can sit. And also, it's it's a perfect example of designing a what a little bit more of a hardcore-ish game for that platform. Whereas, you know, I didn't detect any lag at all when I was playing it. And you're controlling your little, you know, you know, Rango-type puppet, you know, with your kind of left hand. It's like, oh, I get that. That's a marionette. That's a puppet. And then you're shooting with your right. Blam, blam, blam. It's kind of a, you know, almost a. I don't want to say dual stick, but kind of emulating that type of gameplay with just kind of sitting there doing it very casually, very easily. And I wound up like really kind of surfing around kind of the, 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 the stones and not running into them. I wound up targeting guys and then blam, shooting them all, and it all felt very intuitive. Uh, so how, what that means for Gears, I don't know. Because I mean, that's an experience where you're using, you're solely using Kinect. Yeah. You know, I mean, we think about squad-based shooters, and I've got the... I've got the controller in my hand, and I want to tell my guys to, you know, go up to the next yeah, wall the, or whatever. It, it, like, do you think that's that could be cool, or do you think it's that would just end up? Feeling I think like a you, I think my gut says you could do do something like that for Connect, right? Like a hybrid, right? It's a little tricky because like using Connect while sitting, it's not the most accurate. While you're sitting, mm-hmm. it's it's kind of hard to do. But that's I want to see that. Like, if there's a a new Xbox that comes out down the line, what it could have is a better version of a Connect that could maybe detect fingers or even eyes, and you could kind of track eyes, things like that. Uh, and then you know a bridge controller that still has has you know a few buttons on it, but you would deliberately build that controller and have a couple less buttons to in- encourage developers to leverage the other features. So you're not bringing down the mini map and selecting the thing to kind of order your guys full spectrum warrior style. You're using voice, you're using gesture and things like that to kind of supplement it. So it winds up being a hybrid that just kind of works. I think that's totally doable. You know, you you do a magic game where you do this gesture to do a fireball. Yeah, right. But I think and then you pace the game for that too. I mean, it, it always comes down to whether it's Connect or you're even talking about Facebook or mobile. It, it really comes down to the devices are there. It's what people decide to do with them and why they decide to do them. And so, you know, sometimes I think you see this a lot now with Facebook games. Like, yeah, it's big into to doing like Dragon Age versions of Facebook because right now they think this is how I'm going to get my buy-in for my big retail game. Um, you know, which is like not exactly the most kind of altruistic reasons, right, for creating something. Like that's, you know, we like to think that people aren't making games just specifically to make money, but I think a lot of people right now are using those other screens outside of the platform as a way to make money on the retail well, version. Well, a lot of them are just doing it for ad impressions, yeah. right? It's just, it's, you know, I, I would wager, you know, you look at the, the cool Dead Space game that came out on iPad. I mean, my personal gut says that was almost more advertising to kind of get the Dead Space brand out there than yep. it was that we're going to make a ton of money on this iPad game, right? And I'm like, you know, this is actually pretty cool, you know, the controls they, they designed it for the iPad. But I'm sitting here going, well, is there something in there that can directly unlock stuff in my actual right. Dead Space retail game? Like, what what if this, you know, this guy was going through a certain section of, of the sprawl that was adjacent to Isaac in, in, in the other game, and there's things that he could do that would directly affect if you had played it, right? And kind of really start weaving the two together. Cause it's hard. It's really hard to coordinate this. It's really hard to do it. But it's the grail of what everything's going for, right? You want we want the experiences to influence each other, not run adjacent to each other. But I mean, that, and I think, but that's the point where you kind of go. There can be developers who might have really awesome ideas for what they want to do with Connect. But at some point, you do have to have publishers who come on board and sort of agree with that. And I think that sometimes is where we're going to have those kind of conflicts. We've got to get publishers to see a value outside of just the instant money gratification and sort of find something where we're talking about actually progressing the way that you you play and experience games and see it as like the larger picture is not just about like hey I'm going to make cash on this one thing is that if we find a way to sort of open up gaming kind of make it this different experience that like like everybody can benefit from it you know once somebody kind of figures it out everybody can benefit from from that so this is the way that you know iTunes worked which yeah. is that you know it wasn't the first MP3 player by far but you know Apple was the one that realized like hey wait why should you have to actually have the inconvenience of going to a store to buy your music. If my music can be on my device, that makes it easier for people to find the music, you know? And it's like, we, we still need that, somebody to have that stroke where they kind of like figure out what is that iTunes kind of model Are you not seeing, for Connect? think about this, you see the cycle throughout tech and entertainment, you know, there was the, you know, the first cobbled together MP3 players, I bought one years ago, some uh, some mod type developer who had one, it was just a little hard drive you carried around with MP3s on it. Then there was the Diamond Rio, and then Apple came out and boom, they killed it, right? And then you look at, you know, uh, Winback, and you look at Kill Switch, and then you look at Gears, right? And the same thing continues to happen throughout technology where people do an early version of something, and then it gets iterated on, and somebody does it right. Friendster, MySpace, Facebook, right? And, and you always get to the point where you were joking about MySpace, and like, right. we're good. We can't do this any better. It's perfect. Let's just let the money roll in. Winning. Yeah, Winning. yeah exactly. Oh, tech space and tiger blood. Tech keeps shifting, and the problem with a large, large um, entity is it's hard to stay nimble and agile like that because sure. of communication, because of politicking, and because you just get to the point where, well, the numbers are good now, so we clearly, you know, don't need to do anything. I mean, Epic as a studio recognizes that, you know, engine licensing is an important part of our business, so. 
we need to be a leader in the graphics department. So, you know, a while back we sat down and we're like, we need a, a new tech demo. Graphics are not good enough right now. Like, every, you know, I'm really terrified. We all in internally are terrified that if there's going to be a next generation of consoles, and it's scary that I'm saying if, by the way, because nobody knows what the hell's going on right now. Uh, it could be a situation that, you know, Sony or Microsoft are like, oh, let's just take a, you know, PlayStation 3 or an Xbox and, you know, slap a motion control built in and we'll just call it, you know, whatever, right? Yeah. And we're just like, do not do this because, you know, <laughs> Gears 3 looks great. Uncharted it looks amazing. Killzone looks great also. You know, these are great looking games, but they're not good enough yet. We could still get to film quality. And that's the leap we need to make. And, you know, I'm not saying fix the uncanny valley because even pre-render people can't even do that, right? You know, uh, L.A. Noir is a nice step, but it's still a few steps away. You know, Mars Needs Moms looks creepy. I'm sorry. Yeah. And yeah. Just really... Even I, the billboard looks creepy. That movie would have been better if it was Mar Mars Needs Milfs, but that's another point. <laughs> The fact of the matter is... That's the unrated DVD. I want Rango in real time, you know? I want all the stuff, and it's just, you know, we're not at that point yet. We need, if we have to drag everybody kicking and screaming forward, then we will. Uh, how do you get people to want that, though? Because there seems to be this sort of consumer hesitance. You show them. To people didn't know they wanted Avatar until they saw it. I was skeptical about Avatar. When I went to see Avatar, I was like, can I get two for Smurfs in space in 3D? <laughs> and I came out, and I'm like, God damn it, he did it. And, you know, you can say what you want about the story, uh, Cameron was the master of mitigating risk with that because he knew he had enough risk with the tech that he didn't want to risk too much of the story. So he took the safe route, he did the Pocahontas thing, Fern Gully, whatever, it's fine, right? But when you're sitting there and you're seeing it in, in full resolution in 3D and you really feel like you're seeing something you've never seen, I got a little bit of that flutter in my belly, especially during the flight scenes where that I hadn't had since Star Wars as a kid. That's why I think Avatar resonated for so many people and for this entire generation. And that's what we need to do for games. People don't know how good things can be until you show them. It's the, you know, Ford saying, if I'd asked the customer what he wanted, they would have said, faster horse, right? You need to lead and show people, and they, then they will hopefully come. Do you think that it's the technology right now that is the restrictor, or do you think that it's just that the way the industry currently works, that there could be somebody who can make that kind of game right now on for an Xbox 360 or a PS3, but there are publishers that won't take that risk because the investment might be too yeah, much? Yeah, it's, it's, it, to be fair, it's their money, and they're, you know, if you're going to invest in, you know, okay, okay, if you're a person who has all the money and you're going to invest, it's like, all right, here's what we want to do. We want to do a game that's going to be amazing, it's going to drag everybody into the next generation, and it's going to be film quality, and it's going to cost a lot of money. Or you could just make a cool little Facebook social game where people could click on Smurf Berries and you get rich. And they're like, uh, that, right? Maybe it's you know us as a technology provider. Maybe it's 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 our, our desire to see great graphics and what Epic does leading people. But this is what we want to do. And the reason why not a lot of people want to do it is because, yeah, it's risky and it costs a hell of a lot of money. Not everybody's figured out the development pipeline. And you know, I was saying yes, yesterday in the lecture, like I encounter these guys, like we're doing this game. We have 16 studios working on it and 1,300 people. And I'm like, why are you bragging about this? Like, you should be like, you know, we are actually doing this, t doing this game with a couple studios and not a ton of people, and we're not working them to the bone. And then you say, how are you doing that? Well, through smart management, through better tools, through having people who are experienced and have worked together, and just being smart about the decisions we make. And, you know, so Rod Ferguson talks about scoping success. Pick your date and scope your game accordingly for that date, and then if you work smart and make the proper, you know, trade-offs, you can build a AAA game in next generation and beyond. Well, let's circle back to gears a little bit because I think a lot of what we're a lot of what we're talking about here uh, is is relevant because gears is a is a series that sort of started at a time when games didn't have to be anything but games, mm -hmm. right? Like this was right on the cusp when you know you Halo, you know the Halo series had the, started having books and expanding beyond the universe, and you know gears was kind of on the bubble of that, yeah. and it kind of felt like a game that you know that wasn't designed for that, mm -hmm. that it was like, it was a beautiful game, it was really fun, but you didn't get the sense that there was this larger, more mysterious world out there, at least at least for me. And as the series has gone on, that's totally flipped, right? Mm -hmm. Like, Gears 2 was far more like deep into the world than the first game, the comics started coming out, the books started coming out, um, and I guess I'm just wondering, like, when you guys were creating the first Gears of War, was that in your mind, or was it something that you quickly realized, we need to, we need it to was, do it was, that? It was there and it was in our mind. I mean, the, the, the word that was uh, made everyone want to punch everybody was transmedia, right? It's going to be transmedia franchise, we're going to make the game and the movie and the books at the same time, right? It was, it was the episodic content of its day, which by the way is happening now, you look at Borderlands and DLC, that's episodic content. Um, but we deep down knew we wanted it, but the thing is, Gears 1 had such a minimalist storytelling effort, because that was all we could get in at the time. And Gears 2 had a bit more, but to be fair, the campaign suffered a little bit from that because I go to that GIF that went around uh, last year that showed FPS design in 1992, 1993, that showed like Doom E1M1. 
and it's kind of like you know porous cool map and then FPS design in 2010 and it was line cutscene line cutscene line cutscene I'm looking at the the Prima strategy guide for Gears, the Brady ones or whichever one it was, and I'm looking at the overhead maps and I'm like, damn it, we did that. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, so let's what can we do in three to get back more towards that? Because Gear, Gears one when it was at its best did that whole like hourglass gameplay, totally. whereas you know go out to the bowl, you know in the courtyard, figure out your way through. If you die, go for the sniper rifle. I died, go for the grenade, go for the boom shot. And two player and four player co-op now in Gears three, it's even better that way. So we got back to that kind of bowl as opposed to the hallway, which didn't have any flanking opportunities. It was frustrating. Back to what you're saying about IP, you need to make a game that's not just a game, it's a world, right? And they say, you know, games are services now, which, as I said, scares me. Just If you make a world that has such a deep fiction that you can create the uber fan that knows that, you know, this Bernie wears fur boots that are made of cats and has a cameo in Gears 3 and you is a primary character in the books, you have an uber fan, you have the person with the tattoo, who then is your, they're your evangelist, they're your, you know, the person who's going out and preaching to the colonists that they need to convert to Gearsism, right? And did we want it with Gears 1? Yeah, we just go, barely got around to cracking the surface of the story. And now if you're going to make an IP, you need, you know, the Assassin's Creed comic books, you need the Dead Space graphic novels, you need all of that stuff. And so you have this collection and you create the Uber fans and you create the world in the world as well as outside of it. So you have that. Yeah, I guess it always felt to me like, I mean, I, I played a lot of Gears 1, Gears 2, I'm very excited about Gears 3, right? I've read the books and everything. And it always felt to me like you guys were trying to tell a story that you, we almost couldn't fit in. Like yeah. the, the story was there. You all knew what you wanted to well, do. Well, because we did. Because we didn't want to. We didn't want to have cutscenes that were more than four or five minutes tops ever. Like that was just a pet peeve of mine. Is when I play a game and they just go on and on and on. I'm like, and if the cutscenes are good, fine. You know, like but Uncharted does a spectacular job of that. Right? I don't think you even need the cutscenes, right? Because like for me, one of my favorite moments in the first Gears game is when you first run into the Stranded. Right? Mm -hmm. You're you're going through that little neighborhood with the lanterns and yeah. you know here are these people, right? Who it, it, it seems like there's another world out there, and this is not just a bunch of bros like fighting some monsters. We, we weren't even sure if we could do that. That was the thing. Was we, the joke was that that was RPG town. Like, hi, Mister. Can, <laughs> can I get a quest? Yeah. Can, can you get my cat out of the tree? Right. And and if you look at how it was in Gears One, it was so linear, like you know, Hall of Presidents, right? Yeah. And we're not at the point where there's parts in Gears Three that you can go through, and there's people like, hey, what's up, man? And there's people playing ball, and there's like gun ranges and stuff where the stranded are like practicing shooting, and then you meet Ice T. Hello, which is great, um, and so we're more and more, more and more confident in our ability to do that outside of like just the bare minimum. Because, I mean, when you do the roller coaster of game of experience, you, you know, you get those moments where it's just the blockbuster, the monsters coming around, he's knocking down mm -hmm. the building. You kind of need those moments where you dial it back and you're just walking through and kind of seeing how people live, right? And since everybody's stranded now in Gears Three, there's a few parts where you visit with stranded and you see a lot of that ambient storytelling. You know, there's the tent, there's you know the people hanging out in the corner playing checkers and. Especially uh, also at the Raven's Nest when you start at the very beginning of the game. If you go around in the Raven's Nest and you look in all the different rooms, you'll see all these unique assets we created that you can kind of keep piecing together little bits of the story. And that's yeah. that's the better version of storytelling. I love cutscenes. Yeah. Uh, you know, our cutscene director is amazing, and he likes to joke. I, I do the parts of the game that you skip. But to be fair, that's where you get a lot more characterization about characters. You know, when Coltrane shows up in Gears 2 and he's like doing the football play, that's a great moment, right? You know, laboring over Dom and Maria and all that. And you know, to be fair, you know, it was something that we weren't able to ramp up and, and, and pay enough time and, yeah. and do to what it was. It was like that kind of came out of the blue. And we're getting better at it. But that, you know, cutscenes serve that purpose. But ambient storytelling is cheaper and often more effective. Well, it humanizes for one thing. And then I, thought, I always thought that. I think that Halo 1 did really well that, like, honestly probably helped that franchise launch was that by having the Marines and the Grunts have, like, a persona to them while mm -hmm. you're fighting. So you're sort of, like, building this, this real world around sort of these side characters who aren't in cutscenes. These are just people who are basically chattering in the middle of combat. And I think it adds an element, because you're talking about a guy in a suit who you never see his face in a story that is ridiculous and slightly borrowed from some other science fiction. But it's like, to me, it's like that's what made Halo memorable. What, that in the sandbox moment. I you know? guarantee, uh, I don't know what percentage, but a lot of the kids who play Halo and love it don't really know about Ringworld and all that. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. Maybe even haven't seen because Aliens. Because they can't read. The 10 year rule, no. It's <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, the, well, they're busy reading Harry Potter. No, it's, the ten, it's the 10 year rule that I was mentioning. Yeah. I, I, actually, totally. my lecture could have applied that to Halo, the fact that the majority of the kids who played Halo probably never played Doom and Quake. So, yeah. you know, the fact that Master Chief actually looks a little bit like the Doom Marine, they don't, they don't even notice, and it's new to them, right? I mean, you, when I played Halo 1, I was like, okay, so you, I'm basically crash landing on an alien planet, getting out of my crashed ship, and I'm coming out and seeing a beautiful skybox and a waterfall. I'm like, dude, this feels like Unreal 1. 
which none of the kids who played Halo played. And that's, dude, whatever, it's fine, right? It's a phenomenon and it works. The thing about Halo that I miss from Halo to Halo One, Two, and Three that when you when you have Chief is that when you, you know you're playing these guys in Reach who are cool, but you don't have a lot of those people going, "Wow, you're even bigger than I thought." Oh my God, yeah. you're really Master Chief, and you're like. Damn right I am, <laughs> right? And that was a very, that was one of those little things that Bungie did so well that not a lot of games do these days. I want to ask you too, speaking of like characters in, in games, like in, in Gears 3 we have some of the prominent female characters in the series finally making making mm -hmm. an appearance. Why did it take so long to get some awesome female characters in your games? Because time, I know that... Time and budget. Like I, you know, uh, I, the, I wanted them in the first game, and it just conveniently turned out that, uh, well, first and foremost, we were like, okay, you know, a dispatcher is a useful tool. You know, we saw that, you know, Cortana is useful, yeah. and we're like, okay, well, you know, establish cute blonde girl, blonde girl in your ear, as a guy, powerful motivator to get to the next objective. Here, blonde girl at a base, base primal level, right? Yeah. Uh, from that end, like, it conveniently turned out with the fiction that if humanity's on its last legs, then all the women are going to be. Birthing, right? They're going to be used as birth farms, and we actually were able to touch upon that in the comic books. Birth and farms confirmed. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a mini game, right? Where you have to like birth the children. I thought or, that was uh, the Gears of War birth farm is the. It's going to be the Connect game. Is the, you, birth Farmville. The Connect. Yeah. Oh, birth the, the, the Connect game where you reach and have to feel the dilation. And oh god! Problem with that is you don't get feedback on. It was. It was actually. Uh, yes. It was actually dealt with the in. in vibrates. <laughs> Bad. It was dealt with fairly well in the, in the comic books and in the, in the actual books, but that's one of those things that, again, in the fiction, I'm not even going to touch that in a game. Like, where am I even going to go? Like, hey, where's your uh, ex-wife? Uh, she's squatting out babies down at Sector Six. Right? <laughs> it, it, it doesn't fly, right? Um, so to finally get around to that is actually really cool because my suspicion, and I don't know why, is like in the grand scheme of shooters, I, more girls seem to play Gears than a lot of other shooters. I don't know why. You know, I've got go, a lot of female Gears I, players playing online. You go to Comic-Con, the girl comes up, she's like, hey, check out my Crimson Omen tattoo. And I'm like, Jesus, you put that on your, on your neck? Like, that's crazy. And uh, so I had this thing, and you know, as, as bro as people like to joke about Gears is, and as ripped as the guys are in MMA looking, and that's the style, because I'd rather have that than just a forgettable look. Uh, the females, it's my personal thing at the studio level is to make sure that the girls in the game, you know, they're cute, but they're, you know, they're, they're not like hookers, and they're not strippers, yeah. and they don't have, you know, they don't turn around and go, hey, Marcus, <laughs> <laughs> want to play with my stick and I just like see that in games and my eyes just roll back in my head I'm like god and like yeah. when you meet the female gamers at conventions they're like oh, I love Gears you know I love Bernie as a character right. I hope we're gonna have him represented if we were to do that ridiculous stripper I couldn't look him in the eye and like I'd see him at Comic Con and be like I'm sorry right and if you look at even a bullet storm when you look at Trishka Trishka's cute you know maybe a little bit slighted boo boo movement in the first time you see her but overall she kicks ass and she's a cool character and she's tough and hangs with all the guys right that whole like Dallas era like you know heavy metal fact two thing I'm just done and it's not gonna happen well was that a conscious um, I mean so we had Josh Ortega was the writer on the last game switch it up to Karen Travis uh, for uh, Gears of War 3 who's also written um, you know in the Gears universe yeah. novels um, was that a conscious decision to say hey we want to bring somebody in here who we think can really write some seriously awesome female characters it was just it wasn't it wasn't about the female characters as far as finding the writer it was just finding the right writer yeah. but the, the funny thing is is with the perception of Gears being such a bro yo 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 dude shooter two of the three writers we've had working in the series are female so that actually brings me to a question I wanted to ask, which is that there's this sort of very prevalent internet meme, obviously, that Gears is the bro shooter. Um, and in particular, that all of the characters are assholes. Like, in particular, that Marcus is an asshole. And looking back, I'm having a hard time figuring out exactly why that is. Like, I, I don't know Tell any particular it. moment where where Marcus was the douche that people are accusing him of being. I mean, why do you think... Well, the same thing happens with me. Did I ever come out there and say, I'm fucking awesome. You know what? I'm Cliff Blazinski. I'm the fucking man. I, you know, I was talking about my lecture yesterday. I'm just like, you know, what we at Epic want to do with our games. And, you know, Rod is the man. And I, I always throw back to the guys and things like that. But, you know, it's, there's some weird thing where people are like, he's a cocky asshole. It's the purple shirt. <laughs> it could be. Because well, you know, well, I mean, so why why is that? Like, why do you think that people are reading? People that like into to pattern it? match. People like to pigeonhole. People just like to assume. Like, you know, there's no point in gears where the characters like, yo, what's up? Rah, boom, bump the chest. Like, that really doesn't happen that much. You know, they maybe bumped guns once, and that was it, right? Well, I mean, Marcus is a, he's a man of few words, right? And the words he that's does by design, say tend to be gruff, and there's a shit in there a lot of the time. So, well, and the reason why we have, you know, they they say the characters sling these one-liners is the one-liners are there for gameplay purposes. They're there to say, okay, there's four locusts here, I've killed two. Two left. Smoke out. 
die, bitch. Those things are there to let you know that you killed a guy, that how many enemies are left. They're there for status updates. It, it's a continuation of what Half-Life established with the barks of the Marines. And when the Marine goes, I'm going to throw a grenade, and suddenly the grenade comes around the corner, you're like, holy shit, look at how smart he is. He said he'd throw the grenade, and he threw the grenade. It's a, it's a similar type of dialogue system. So why that comes through, why there's this perception, I'm not sure. And if I can get a handle on it, you know, it's one of those things we'll continue to massage away from, because it's, it's something that people use to dis dismiss an entire franchise. It's like, uh, you know, have you played Gears? No, I don't. It's a big bro, big, big guy game, not my thing, right? Something, it's, I mean, something that I find particularly interesting about it is just the sort of college frat boy accusation that gets labeled. But meanwhile, Gears probably has the widest diversity of characters as far as, like, ethnicities and backgrounds. Uh, and I just, I'm... I'm not sure why. It's, it's the same thing about the, the, bald, the bald space marine dismissal, right? There's only ever one bald dude in the franchise, and he got killed in the first hour of Gears One. It was Kim. Everybody else has hair, right? I can guarantee under that durag, Marcus, there's hair. Ty had at least had a mohawk, right? And they're like, these are space marines. It's like actually, there's no space travel in this game. They're on their own planet, so they're just. And they're not even marines. Yeah, you, well, you can't you really use that, right? Because, yeah. you know, you have to be careful with what you use with Marines. I mean, but this, it this had to go through those space Marines, right? Doesn't it all, it just ties to, like, internet fanboyism, right? Where it's essentially, like, one, it's a Microsoft-exclusive game, so if I am if I own only PS3, then I'm going to shit on all the Microsoft stuff. And then, two, it's that Halo came first, so if I've already bought into Halo and I love Halo, I, goddamn, there's no game that's going to come around and look better or be better or be perceived as being better than Halo, so I think sometimes there's that, that weird defensiveness that for some reason we've built well, into our culture. My, I remember, I, I, I try and remember how this felt when I was a kid. Mm. I was the biggest Nintendo fanboy. Like, I would cut out Nintendo things. I need, I ate the Nintendo cereal, right? Remember that? It was like, sent a score to an Nintendo power. Yeah, all we, of it. We right? had a question in the audience. Oh, well, actually, I'll, uh, I'll ask. I'll just let me finish ahead. the story real quick. It's actually really important to understand the mind of a fanboy. If When I was younger, I remember going to, I think it was Leechmere Electronics Store in, in like Danvers, Massachusetts, right? And I was such a Nintendo fanboy. I was like, loved everything Nintendo. I was brand loyalty, right? And there's a master system there. And I was like, my parents were off shopping, and I was there, and I looked over, and I was kind of like, and I started playing it a little bit. I was playing Alex Kidd, right? And the feeling I had in my gut, I felt like I was like cheating on my wife. I swear <laughs> to God. And I felt dirty afterwards. I wanted to go home and like take a shower because I was such a Nintendo fanboy. Later, I got you know I got older and I grew up a little bit about it all. And I got a Genesis and I could appreciate all the different consoles for what they were. But in that moment, it was the worst feeling in the world. I felt filthy. And that's that. And that's the the mentality. So if you spend your paper root money on your games and this console that you worked your butt off for, you're gonna be like rabidly loyal about it. And that's where a lot of that fanboy mentality comes from. I had that actually. One, uh, I was a giant Sega fanboy, so I loved the Dreamcast. I still support the Dreamcast to this. And uh, and then I actually got offered a job here when the Xbox was launching. They're like, "Hey, we need somebody to, to help work on an Xbox." I, and I couldn't. I could not hate Microsoft more as a Sega fan to try to come into the console market. But I wanted a job, so I took the job. And <laughs> I just eat. remember the the first day I was like, "We like, well, we just got in Halo, so you should check that out before the console launches." And uh, it, it took about about. 30 minutes before I said, like, mm, this Xbox might turn out okay. <laughs> yeah. But still, those, those old loyalties die hard. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I, if, if Sega were going to launch a Dreamcast 2 all of a sudden, I'm pretty sure I would just kick my Xbox out the window. <laughs> Confirm. Uh, uh, I wanted, well, I wanted to touch on oh, right, you what you were, yeah. you know, Arthur's point about why, you know, people tend to connect Gears of War, the Gears of War series with the kind of bro thing. And uh, bring a little bit in from your lecture, like, I, one of the things that's kind of frustrated me about the Gears, um, series overall is that I think there is a lot of emotion in that universe but it hasn't really been brought in well in the game series so far right like you were talking about you know the Don Maria thing and like how that could have been handled better and you talked a lot in your lecture about like you know you lost your dad when you were young Rod had that experience too and a lot of that stuff is kind of in gears yeah. um, and the relationship between you know Marcus and Anya is there, but it's it's, it's I, you I totally never can get to it. I get what you're getting at, and the, the thing about Marcus and Anya is, is is there's a little bit more of that in three, right? As far as it kind yeah. of comes through a little bit. Part of it's just the character design, like in depicting that kind of emotion when the characters are wearing this really uh, over the top armor, right? It's like a, an intimate moment between a man and a woman where they're kind of like feeling this, right? Perfect so, uh, de-armoring scene, right? I mean, well, I don't want to spoil anything, but you know the armor's a metaphor and things like that. <laughs> Um, and so there's that we get a little bit of that actually toward, as we wrap up the third one. I don't want to spoil and everything, but I, you know, I actually caught myself in the office with the guys getting a little misty during that cutscene because 
uh, it was a combination of you know how many years of our lives working on this franchise as well as a cutscene that was very well done that there's a lot of personal things that are kind of coming through where they wind up at the end um, is, and, uh, once the game is out we can spoil all this I'll have, gladly do a follow up with you guys about where they wind up and why um, but it's one of those things when you have a game and you're dealing with the when it's at its most ludicrous when you're these guys in this armor that are this big chainsawing the arteries of a giant worm so that they might drown in the blood if they don't cut it soon enough to go from there to the scene where a man has to put down his own wife who's been turned into a vegetable by the creatures from the underground you have to really spend a lot of time working on that gradient and what happens is sometimes we go from here too quickly to here yeah. too quickly back to the combat Right, and it's something we're learning as a studio to evolve to do better. Uh, you know, take the time and to kind of ease and ease out, and, and to give Dead Space credit where credit is due. I'm not to shift away from narrative for a second and just talk about pacing. They had Dead Space Two did such a good job of shifting from these little subtle, creepy little moments, ramp up, ramp up, insane, die-hard blockbuster moment, ramp down, ramp down, ramp down, creepy, and they had, they caught that roller coaster ride perfectly. And that's something that you have to do with the narrative, and we're continuing to evolve and get better at it. Yeah, right? I mean, one of the the common definition for melodrama is asking for an emotion that the audience isn't ready to give and there's two sides to that one is that sometimes you don't prepare the story properly so <laughs> that the emotion is kind of like that you haven't basically earned that emotional response but sometimes it's also that the, the player the audience isn't ready to give that and that can be something where you have I think it's very hard for action games to pull this off because yes. I think you kind of build like this sort yeah. of like internal adrenaline that's kind of happening while you're playing a game it's very hard to suddenly like build that cooldown period mm -hmm. Um, you know, I think Halo like three actually had like this. I thought the ending worked very well because it was so subtle, and that actually you get a little bit of breath before like Master Chief goes into cryostasis. You know, you kind of like it kind of earns it. it actually, that the cutscene goes for like a few minutes, and like by the time it actually happens, like I think you're sort of like cooled down enough, like yeah. internally from playing the ending, that you kind of like are ready for that to happen. And yeah. I think you also have the understanding that it's it's like the end for for him anyway. And so yeah, I think Rich, the players did a pretty good job of that too. Yeah, right? Rich does that really. That well whole too. like you know survive objective that was actually kind of poignant. It's hard, I think, because games we, we haven't really. There's so much awesome fiction out there around yeah. Gears and Halo, right? But it it doesn't always make its way into the game as well as we and all might want it to. But that's not that's not a bad thing, right? And as we continue to evolve and get better at it, but do you I want like the, the game to just be the shell for shooting, and then the universe is the, out the, here? The game is the gateway, right? And you know, we you know, Marcus and Anya really kind of having a thing. We don't want to spend the time to depict too much of that in the game because we're too busy depicting all these awesome set pieces and things like that. And we want you know, let the book do that. You know, if we ever get around to making the damn movie, let the movie deal with those interactions, right? And because you know, it creates the, a reason to go get to that stuff because you don't get everything from the game, right? There's more to crack open with the other things in the property. Well, I know that you you believe that the games as art debate is dumb because hey, there it's art. I'm not like, even having it. So, but but I mean, to get everybody to recognize that, like, wouldn't it be necessary to bring some more of that that those do narrative need, touches? Do we need everybody to recognize that? I think isn't that the other question? Time though? will fix it. That's a different. That is a different question. I would agree. But I mean, if we do want the books to take care of it and the movies to take care of it, isn't that kind of saying we don't think that games can get to that level? I think games can. I, I think we're also we're all jaded, and we know like all these references. You know, we know where the ring came from from Larry Nevin, right? Like, we know this stuff, right? We're Uber fans who are game designers and press and media, right? To you know, swing back on the Dom and Maria scene. If you go to YouTube and look up that scene, there's like you know 600 comments, and 500 of them are people talking about how it made them cry. And I'm not saying we did a perfect job of it. And you know the ramping up and ramping down could have been better, but you know that's a hard thing to accomplish. I mean, you know, if you I saw Waiting for Superman recently, which is just an amazing documentary, and I actually was watching on the plane coming back from the press junket for Boltstorm in London, and I'm sitting there on the plane, like, and there's people around me. I'm like hiding, like, I'm really like getting teary-eyed about this because over the course of two hours, they fucking earned it and they took their time with it. And in a game when you're dealing with, you know, going between all the action and all the excitement of, uh, you know, the, the blockbuster Michael Bay experience, it's hard enough to just make a person cry in a linear narrative, much less an interactive one. Well, I think isn't one of the biggest problems is that, so in a movie, the director, the actors, they control that pacing with the dialogue, with the editing, et cetera. But for you, you don't control, uh, you know, Arthur might be able to speed through a game. Somebody else might want to look at every corner of a game. Even if there's no collectibles, they might want to see yeah. every piece of art. Or they might suck and they might just keep dying in a scene. And I think mm -hmm. that, you know, pacing in a narrative is very difficult, I would assume, in a game because you just don't know the range of what, how people are going to experience that, right? Yeah, I mean, it, and, and pacing is how that happens, right? It's the same thing where, you know, if you, you listen to really good, uh, you know, all the, the classic, uh, you know, Disney musical stuff, you know, Lion King and Aladdin and, and you know, when, when Ariel sings Part of Your World, 
if, unless you're a jaded fuck and, she, <laughs> and, and, and it crests, you get goosebumps. And somehow they knew how to time that perfectly in that formula. You know, if you go, I don't know, we joke about being big musical guys, right? But if you like musicals and the ones that do a good job of it, it gives you this feeling and they just, they know how to do it scientifically and that's what the, the, the musicians do. With a game, it's good luck because you don't know when those chords are going to come in, you know, where they're going to be. They could be running into a wall and things like that. And that's why we generally try and put it in cutscenes because that's the linear medium. That's the way you do it. It's just ramping into that is tough. I wanted to ask you, you just mentioned musicals. Um, you said before that you were kind of a drama nerd, yeah. like back when you were growing up. Uh, aside from maybe having that help you be somebody who's out in front for Epic and you know doing things like this and talking to press and appearing in front of the camera, like what do you think that has done for you? Like how did that set you up to do your job? So it, it gave a sense of pacing, right? And, and you know, to be fair, when I was younger and we'd be doing demos of our game. Uh, you get that sense when you've been dwelling on one scene too long or you, you know when to move it along and I'd sit there and God bless Mark Rain, love him, great what he does but when he was demoing he'd like sit there and look at a wall for too long and just talk and like move it along right <laughs> and you just get that sense where it's like you know you rapping good you know you can just kind of tell when the beats are being hit and like and this has bled all the way through to us figuring out what we're going to show off at stage at E3 how we're going to play it how, you know how we rehearse that because make no mistake that's acting you know if I'm up there and there's a Lambert Berserker sure, chasing yeah. me and we're playing it real time you better hit your mark you better get to this point and make your game look great because you know you are playing it but you're acting it to make it look good right and so that's one of the big things I think came out of there it's that sense of acting and pacing that then translates into live demos as well as gameplay pacing do you feel like the the sort of realities of game development of things being cut of having to shift things around at the last second to make ship how much does that force you to compromise, or how much does that hurt the idea of pacing, especially with story? It can mess. It can mess with it a lot because uh, the thing we like to joke about is the better integrated your story is into your game, the harder it is to cut things out, right? Because you know we had this with Gears One, where we cut out that level that actually explained how this damn bomb got on the train, and for some reason we never noticed it because we all knew how the bomb got on the train, yeah, and right. but the customers like, wait, what the f what is this? Where did this come from? Which later was explained, but the thing is, is if you put things in like that, like you know, for the flamethrower guy who's crucial to the plot, it's like that one moment. Well, he, he, we can't run him because of the frame rates. He's the flamethrower guy. You're screwed now, right? So you'd have to do a good job integrating your story, but the risk there is that you can't cut it out. The good thing about that is if you you can't cut things, you can't then use it as DLC. Because DLC, that feels like cutscenes, like scenes that were removed from the game, not cutscenes, cutscenes, is DLC that nobody wants. It's yeah. the same thing. You get a Blu-ray of a movie, and you're like, oh, I'm going to see all the deleted scenes. And you're like, I can tell why they deleted that. That, that added absolutely nothing. And so the gamers can smell that a million miles away, which is why, to transition real quick from story to DLC, DLC that is interesting and compelling is DLC that's in its own bucket and is unique. And nobody knew this more than Randy Pitchford and what they did with Borderlands, where it wasn't just the section of the overworld that had been put on the cutting room floor. It was the zombie island of Dr. Ned. It was Mad Moxie's Underdome Ride. It was Claptrap Revolution. And it was its own unique branded thing. And that's the, what the smart people who are doing DLC do these days. So maybe we can go back to, we haven't really talked about gameplay and Gears, and I think that's actually important because coming from, you know, a studio that puts out something like Unreal Tournament, which is like Twitch gaming at its you know, core, and it's like really about like a big online competitive gaming, and then to do Gears, which is, you know, there have been a couple of other cover shooters before, but it's kind of become no, it's like, it's like the poster child of sort of starting the cover shooter revolution, which we see in everything from Mass Effect to GTA 4 to Red Dead Redemption. Everybody uses, seems to use cover nowadays in some way. Uh, what was the decision? Because that obviously does change pacing quite a lot to, yeah. to make cover and sort of like to slowing it down, putting it in third person, like why go that route? Well, it was, it was us transitioning from the PC roots and the Twitch PC roots of having the perfect pinpoint accuracy controls of a keyboard and a mouse sure. to dual analog. If you go back and you really look at Halo, Halo's actually a very sluggish game. The speed at which you move, how you jump, you almost feel like you're kind of moving through like this low gravity type yeah. jello. But that actually makes the game very playable as a result, right? Call of Duty, to be fair, is actually a little bit more twitchy, which has resonated very well with players and actually plays quite different than Halo. Gears, we wanted to slow it down. We wanted the players to feel like tanks. We wanted them to slam into cover. We wanted the player to really feel like he's interacting with the world. And it was a deliberate, cautious decision as we put it on console. The thing that has always made me laugh was when Gears came out and there's all these quotes about, like, why is this game big? You know, this game's not innovative. And then after there, you just, every game starts having cover. The roadie runs suddenly starts appearing everywhere. Co op becomes this thing that you now have to have in so many games, and even story based co op. You know, the Y button look to look at stuff is in, like, so many games right now, right? And, <coughs> and I'll take that. I think that's awesome, right? Even though Active Reload's barely been picked up. Yeah, um, it's weird, right? Because yeah. I think that's one of the best mechanics in yeah, the game. It's actually in Spy Party. 
Have you seen that? Really? Yeah, yeah. Chris Hacker's <laughs> game. Huh. There's a, when you, when you were playing as the spy, and you, uh, if, have you guys seen that game? Yeah, I saw yeah. it down on the floor. Yeah. It's yeah. actually surprisingly effective. We were playing it yesterday, and. Uh, my girlfriend's got, she's the sniper, and she, I'm trying to act like an AI, and I'm like, I'm deliberately trying to like run into walls to look like it's stupid, <laughs> something like that, right? And I see the, the, the laser come over, and I'm like, shit, don't move. And then it moves over again, and I'm like, I'm trying, and so when you try and complete the objectives, you're like trying to take some microfiche or something off of a shelf. To get it smoothly, you have to do a little active reload mini game, and then go over there, and I'm like, oh, why is this active reload in this game? And I'm trying to act like an AI, and I walk over, and pop, I get popped, and I'm like, <laughs> God damn it! It was actually surprisingly effective, but that was one that wound up winding up in another game. And I'll take it. I mean, if, if players, you know, designers out there want to lift some of the things we do, it's just flattering, right? It's cool. Vanquish was awesome. I wish you had multiplayer though. Mm -hmm. I didn't dig it. I couldn't get into it. Right? I, couldn't I, get into it I feel Vanquish actually breaks some of the rules you were talking about before, as far as taking control away from the player, like getting knocked down and that sort of very Japanese feedback. I, I think that oh, was that, that, that was a little bit punished. of the Lost Planet legacy, right? Yeah. I, whenever I, Lost Planet is, is, is a cool title, and the second one did a lot of cool stuff. That giant uh, slug boss was amazing. Uh, the Marcus and Dom cameo was great, but the, my frustration when I would play Lost Planet 1 in particular, was I kept hearing that Chumbawamba song in my head. <laughs> right, it's all getting all down, but I'll get up again. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Again. Everybody who's watching this will now yeah. have that in their head yes. for the rest of it. Also, I think we have to pay $500 now, don't we? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the licensing fees and everything are paying. Yeah, I mean, that's pinning the player down like that. You have to be really careful if you ever do it. That's one of those things. Like, and so in a lot of the things, the stuns in Gears 3 are just top half only. So your character might go like this, and you only you can't shoot for a quarter of a second, but you can still kind of move around, right? You got to be very, very careful when you do that kind of thing. Like active reload, if you screw up your active reload, you can't fire, you know, and it's actually by design, right? Like you, yeah. you're stuck because you made a conscious decision to opt into that. And it punishes you brutally if you fail. And those, on that, I mean, anything that's instant death is generally pretty telegraphed in the Gears of War games. Yeah, we try uh, to. And Vanquish is less good about that. Yeah, I, mean, I really think I was just playing on an easier difficulty, honestly, because. For me, it felt like taking, if Gears was like the, the like 1800s coal-powered train, you know, that's kind of going through the wild, wild west, that uh, Vanquish felt like the Japanese bullet train version of that, which right. I saw a ton of potential there. The slide was really, really great. The boss battles are nuts. And bosses, by the way, as a game developer, if I can confide in you guys, because I would never tell anybody else this, bosses are a nightmare, man, from a development standpoint. They're a giant pain in the ass, because you put so many man months into a 10-minute encounter, mm -hmm. whereas you could spend those man months to make a new enemy that you could then fight a whole bunch of times throughout the game, or a new weapon they could use a bunch. It's this one-off. You know the plant boss in Boldstorm? That took, like, months. And it's a cool boss fight, but it's like, which you probably breezed through in about 15 seconds. It's one of the less <laughs> interesting parts of the game. Yeah, to be fair, but it's, come on, it's a giant plant, dude. It is a giant plant with balls growing off. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, and that's why there are some games that just don't do bosses. And when when, and, and, Bunge, when Bungie gets away with that, well, Bungie Bungie didn't though in Halo Two. They actually did have a boss fight at the end of Halo Two, and it was terrible. Uh, they, I, yeah. There was a big uh, brute but chief there. It, it was terrible. But I love the uh, I love the the, the scarabs were great. Yeah, the, the giant. Yeah, those, those are cool. They, because that's not it. it doesn't it, have the the same feeling of like a normal boss battle where it's like you kind of come to the scene and it goes like this is the end of the yeah. level. Now you will fight this big boss kind of thing. It's like yeah. it just feels like a natural integration. Well, it's, it's, I mean, it's the level is a boss fight. The encounter yeah. is a boss fight as opposed yeah. to are you will shoot my jetpacks now and then I will transform into stage three. Right. Yeah. The scarab is is a thing where you're challenged to complete it as opposed to you have to do this one task over and over again. Like, and there's gating, right? Yeah, you can, I mean, you can kill a scarab like that in Halo if you know exactly what you need to do, whereas, uh, say, a boss in Vanquish, you have to keep shooting him, and then he flies away and laughs at you, and there's banter, and then you have to keep shooting him again. And it just, it's sort of wearying at times. Well, is, is that, like, kind of an old-school mentality about game design versus new school, like the classic? I think it might be. It does seem rooted in the quarter-munching philosophy yeah. of action games from, like, the 80s. When you were saying the go-off and, 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 like, cackle at me, I was picturing those House of the Dead bosses that had that really high-pitched, squeaky voice, yeah. right? Like, oh, I won't get you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. It's, uh, it's hard to believe, but we've actually managed to go an entire hour like that. Wow. Uh, but I know Ryan has one sort of final wrap-up question about your past in gaming and your love for Nintendo. Oh yeah, uh, so there was some question around the office of, you, so your high score in Super Mario Brothers was in the first issue of Nintendo Power, right? Yeah, it was also in the, the, the last issue of the Nintendo Fun Club. Okay, so how did you know to send your score in to a magazine that didn't exist yet? But, uh, because it was from the Nintendo Fun Club. So they said, we're starting a magazine. No, no, it was uh, the continuation, so what? This is, this is it was a newsletter. Yeah, right. it was the Nintendo Fun Club that Howard Phillips was spearheading, right? And they had, like, it had Zelda 2 on the cover at one point, it had Mike Tyson's Punch-Out, and they were saying, send in your high scores at that point. And so I took the, you know, played Mario, hopped, you know, 
got through almost to the end and then just hopped in the shell and repeatedly went doing, 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 right? And then took the Polaroid of it and then mailed it to Redmond. And then that they just used those for the first publication. So you didn't even Bob. know that that was going to be in a magazine. You thought it was just going to be a fun. I thought it was going to be in the Nintendo Fun Club. I didn't know it was wow. going to be in Nintendo Power. But when I heard about uh, Nintendo Power, I, I camped my mailbox, man. <laughs> like when that first issue showed up with that like, little clay thing about Super Mario 2, like and the, the smell of the. the I still, that's the thing about all the. I'm going to miss manuals, right? And I'm glad they're going away as a creative. But as a person, I miss that smell of that ink. Like when I first saw the Zelda manual, and I could still smell it to this day, and that sense of mystery that it had. We're all holding it alive. Because we have an employee have a, who, yeah, yeah, who yeah. still opens up every new game and smell. He actually smells the manuals. Yeah. It's funny. Like I was in Toys R Us recently. I hadn't been to Toys R Us for years, right? So my wife and I go into Toys R Us and I look over at the video game section, which is a shadow of what it used to be yeah. in my mind. Because I remember going into There's that Toys R Us beautiful wall of game card, yeah. the Nintendo boxes, right? And it was Rygar. like being in like. I don't know heaven or something, yeah. and uh, and it's just not. I wonder. I wonder if it's the same for kids now, or if they're so used to like downloading stuff. And well, there. I mean, it's this is. Uh, I hate to sound like an old fart, but it's a kind of an entitled generation, and uh, you know, talking about Scott Pilgrim and. You know, this Scott Pilgrim's the movie. This generation, the problem is this generation doesn't pay for shit, right? And, and you know, my nephew's sitting there playing Call of Duty with a modded controller, texting his you know teenage girlfriend while he's listening to YouTube songs that he didn't buy, right? And so it's kind of the way the world is right now, and it's, uh, we'll see where it goes moving forward. Cool. Well, that is all the time that we have. Uh, thanks again, Cliff, for coming by and talking some Gears with us. Uh, don't forget, you can get into the Gears beta pretty easily. All you have to do is either pre-order Gears of War 3 or buy yourself a copy of Bulletstorm on Xbox 360. Uh, so for Cliff, for Ryan, for Arthur, I'm Hilary Goldstein, uh, and we'll see you next time. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.